I'd like to quote one of my favourite poets, Percy Bysshe Shelley, who wrote in the early 19th century many, many poems and travelled extensively around Europe. But the line I like the best is this one. Rise like lions after slumber in unvanquishable number. Shake your chains to earth like dew, which in sleep had fallen on you. Ye are many, they are few. Opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives, I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left, What's Chris? Well, we know who the hard who, left are in the you know I, ascendancy I, within the within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing. The hard left agenda: printing money, national without compensation as a hard left-wing position. Hard left, left, the hard 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 left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, 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 hard Like, welcome to Real Politic, everyone. Um, God, that's, it's, it's already got a like and an um in like the first line of the intro. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, welcome to Real Politic, everyone. Uh, it's me, Jack, as always. I'm joined by our most recent edition, new co-host and, of course, director of strategy and communications brackets, Mr. Seamus Milne, uh, Geraint, <laughs> at WarioTifo on Twitter. Hello. And we're joined, unfortunately, not by Yair, but by a very special guest, a new socialist. I'm one of the culture editors, along with this extremely talented writer and editor, Rianne E. Jones. And um, Hello. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, hello, hello. Hello there. Sorry. Sorry, like, no, totally. You Get get a word in, please, by all means. <laughs> yeah, it's really great to have you here, Rianne. Thank you. And Rianne's written, like, a lot of good stuff for New Socialist and elsewhere about politics and often politics intersection with popular culture, which, of course, is an area of particular interest to me and to the show. And Rianne's written... Okay, so you've edited, co-edited one of these books. And the other one is a book that you've written for Zero Books called Clampdown, Pop Cultural Wars on Class and Gender. The collection that you've edited is Under My Thumb, Songs That Hate Women and The Women Who Love Them, which she edited with, is it Ellie Davis? Ellie Davis, yeah. Ellie Davis, yeah. Then that's for Repeater, who are a, like a great publisher and named after, I mean, one of the most misogynistic Rolling Stones songs against some pre- some, some steep competition. I'd say. Oh, yeah, we, we thought we'd go for the most obvious one, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the title. 
<laughs> um, no messing around, you know? Yeah, and like as it says on the back cover, Under My Thumb contains writing about murder ballads, country, metal, hip-hop, emo, indie, Phil Spector, David Bowie, Guns N' Roses, Tupac, The Rolling Stones, of course, Bob Dylan... <laughs> And that's Rianne's piece that she wrote for the book, which I read the other night, and it's it's really, really great. Thank you. ACDC, Elvis Costello, Jarvis Cocker, Kanye West, Swans, Eminem, Jay-Z, Taylor Swift, Combi Christ. Not an oh, yeah. artist I'm familiar with. <laughs> and many more. But that Bob Dylan chapter, like, obviously, as anyone who's listened to the show will know, I'm, like, a Dylan obsessive. And, like, mm-hmm. I thought that was, like, one of the best pieces of uh, of writing on, on Dylan that I, I've read in a while. And oh, like you did. You articulated really well the reasons why he's good and then also why he's not infallible and why if you look in you know <laughs> there's uh, there's certain things in his lyrics that i guess like i don't know i remember someone saying that even though he's one of the greats he's got like a set of tricks that he returns to over and over again that become more obvious as his career goes on and mm. some of those include just like kind of weird attitudes about women yeah i guess so I hadn't actually thought about it like that before, but yeah, I mean, t- to be fair, I, I spent about, I don't know, I first got into Dylan like over a decade ago and I've spent about that long like planning to write a big piece mm-hmm. about him and that, that's kind of what I managed with this. But yeah, there's like obviously loads more that I want to say about why he's brilliant, but it's just I had to take this particular angle on his gender politics. But yeah, like I'm really, particularly like if, if you're also a Dylan obsessive, I'm really pleased when people who are Dylan obsessives like my stuff because I think it's quite obvious to say he's a boring old white man with a guitar etc I'm I'm not really (laughs) interested in that kind of critique of him it's more like yes he is brilliant but part of the reason that he's brilliant is is also that he's kind of awful unpleasant misanthropic you know seething self-pitying self-aggrandizing egotistical etc all of that part of his brilliance so i hope all of that came across in the essay like it really is written from a place of love you know yeah i mean you you talked about how so much of his legend is tied up in kind of like ideas of white male rebellion Mm, yeah totally i think he because he's one of the sort of i guess he's at the start of this spectrum of sort of countercultural rebellion and the majority of people that we think about when we think of that are white men for kind of obvious reasons so even though it's valid that they hold that place it's good to sort of critique them as part of critiquing that tradition like by default it sort of cleaves to a white and male archetype of rebellion and that obviously erases a lot of the people who are also rebellious and who are also kind of cultural so yeah he's a good starting point for sort of delving into that tradition i thought the piece articulated that really well and and like one last thing on it i really appreciated that you clearly spent your time with the dylan catalogue and there was some, oh yeah there was some <laughs> some deep cuts in there like uh the, like the, i mentioned to you in a message there was a line from sweetheart like you on infidels which is like yes. <laughs> i don't know it's got like I, I feel it's not like a great song but it's it's got some good bits uh, yeah, the gender politics are almost a lesser crime than the fact that it forms part of his really god-awful, like, evangelical Christian phase. Um, <laughs> so, like, I was never going to like the song anyway. But yeah, I, I, there's so much that's awful about it. But the, the gender politics are part of what's awful. Well, it's that line that kind of just jumps out at you, like, wait, what? Where he's just like, a woman like you should be at home. <laughs> Shut up, Bob. But then the, the song also has this kind of line about how patriotism 
is the last refuge of the scoundrels. So there's yeah, yeah. there's that duality. <laughs> you know, he's a complex, <laughs> very complex guy, especially in his evangelical Christian era. You know, a woman like you should be at home. That's where you belong. But yeah, I could obviously talk about Bob Dylan all day, but we've we've got a different agenda for this particular real politic. So Rianne is also the author of a piece for New Socialist called On Peterloo Poetry and the Politics of Protest History. It's a lot of uh, a lot of alliteration in that. Well, I've got to have some alliteration. I mean, I come from the same town as Neil Kinnock, you know, so you've, you've, got, to, um, <laughs> you've got to acknowledge the, the use of rhetoric. What, what's a, an alliterative way of uh, saying falling into the sea? <laughs> um, Neil Kinnock falling into the sea, drowning, labour in the raw, hard left. So this piece that I just reread before we recorded this, so it's fresh in my mind. Uh, like, once again, it's very good obviously <laughs> obviously i like rianne's writing you know hence we've invited her on the show but this piece is really good and it's about obviously mike lee's film that came out towards the end of last year didn't it peter Lou. yeah um, last november i think yeah that's when the article was published and i didn't watch it when it came out i saw it on a streaming platform earlier this year hopefully recently enough I can still have some mildly salient insights on it um, and I really liked Peter Lou. I'm a big Mike Lee fan in general and I thought that Mr Turner was an absolutely terrific film but this I mean had a lot more political fire than mm -hmm. Mr Turner did which was you know a great showcase for Tim Spall to spit and chew and <laughs> but this one it's not focused on one individual like Turner was it's a sprawling ensemble feature um, mm -hmm. and nobody does sprawling ensemble features like Mike Lee because his ensembles write the features with him <laughs> and it's real collaborative and you know kind of more socialist than most you could sort of say I guess kind of filmmaking and mm -hmm. so I guess first let's talk about the film and did we actually think it was good and everything and then we get on to more of its political connotations and so on. Mm -hmm. I mean like I say so I, I saw it at this premiere because a mate of mine Katrina Navikas who's a proper historian as in has a job doing this stuff was a historical consultant on the film Okay. so she got tickets to the premiere and took me along so that was obviously very exciting it was a kind of surreal experience as well because it's in the place we saw it is called Home in Manchester which is a leisure and cultural complex I guess in Tony Wilson Place so, so a lot to be said about sort of how we remember oh, yeah. um, wow. popular culture and it's very near the site of the Peterloo massacre as well so it was kind of surreal to be drinking free champagne on the field where our ancestors were slain it was yeah. <laughs> A bit peculiar, but yeah, we can we can talk about that as well. I guess how culture becomes sort of absorbed and gentrified. But yeah, so that was when I first saw the film. So you saw it on a streaming platform because I would be interested, particularly like how the climax of it would work on a small screen. Because part of seeing it on a cinema screen was that it was it was really overpowering. Yeah, um, and, and the last half hour, which depicts the massacre almost 
blow by blow was really really difficult to watch so i don't know if you if you felt the same way i actually did i i found it like i was i was like literally in tears by the end i found it Mm. really really difficult to watch uh i think just as a general rule of thumb watching a film on a big screen is better so i wouldn't say that there is anything superior about watching it in the comfort of your own home but (laughs) it is not i don't think lessened to the extent that the edge of the film is blunted i mean i I thought it was devastating yeah i mean i watched it literally yesterday to catch up on a small screen again and again despite knowing what's going to happen and having an inkling on what sort of characters are going to suffer from it. It is still the way it's filmed and mm. the sort of detail it's shown in and yeah, yeah. the sort of unflinching nature of it, it's still very affecting, despite, as I say, knowing exactly what the outcome is going to be. I think one of the reviews at the time said that it was filmed almost like a disaster movie. Yeah. So you sort of you follow all these characters from the start, but you know exactly where they're going to end up. So you're sort of anticipating some horror, you know, and then and then it sort of reaches its climactic carnage. Um, yeah. There's certainly some bits in the middle that almost sort of nod at what's going to happen in the same way you'd get watching Titanic or something like that. 2012. Yeah. Yeah. That terrible film uh, <laughs> directed by like Roland Emmerich or one of those guys. Like that film has got a, again a sprawling ensemble cast who you. Uh, get to know uh, as the events build up and then follow them throughout the events as they unfold yeah no I, I totally see that and yeah it doesn't feel like a dry do a miserable film it's got a lot of humor as usual with Mike Lee's films the dialect of the time as again with Mr. Turner they take a lot of pleasure in people talking in this archaic fashion <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, it's not quite as... Beca- I think largely because this film deals with working class people who, whilst of course literate people and so on and intelligent people generally probably won't be walking into a room being like, a splendid cornucopia this scene, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of my favourite yeah, lines yeah. from Mr Turner. <laughs> Mr Ruskin, can I pose you a somewhat conundrous question? Ah, please do, Mr Turner. <laughs> To which do you find yourself the more partial? A steak and kidney pie or a villain and pie? <laughs> I must confess, Mr Turner, that I find myself quite unable to answer your question with the precision that I would wish. But then you do get these peeks into the ruling classes as well, who are portrayed mm-hmm. as grotesque and horrible, and I think that's yes. absolutely fine. But it's kind of not... Yeah, I don't, when I was watching it, there were moments where I was a bit like, oh, come on, you know, this, <laughs> you, you're portraying them as, you know, Dickensian grotesques, you know, and even as a socialist working-class historian, you know, I was like, oh, dude, really? You know, I'm, I'm sure they weren't this bad, but then you sort of look into the history and, like, they kind of were, yeah. you know? They were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A couple of the bad guys in it, if you like, based on specific name characters, and you can look them up and be like, yeah, actually, oh, yeah, that's not yeah. harsh at all. It's not a caricature. One of the, is it Joseph Nader, who's one of the magistrates? Again, you, you can look at the history, and yeah, he he was like a, an absolute mm. dick. Um, not, not to sort of put to... I was trying to think of a you know a professional historian's term, but um, yeah, real dick, yeah. Um, which, did, which did come across in the film. So like, it wasn't really... Yeah, lots um... of dick moves in this film. <laughs> But yeah, it wasn't sort of like pantomime and it wasn't exaggerated to make a point. It is really quite a realistic portrayal of these opposing class forces, I guess. I mean, there's the scene 
right at the end, which, as I think we're discussing a historical film that came out around a year ago, it's not too big a spoiler to say, like, it does kind of turn into Black Adder for, like, one scene, with, albeit with... Oh, God, yeah, it does. I know, th- yeah, I know with, the scene you yeah. mean. <laughs> uh, with Tim McInerney instead of Hugh Laurie, obviously McInerney, a veteran of various Black Adder characters, but not that particular one. I mean... It's kind of funny. It's it's like a bit of light relief, I guess, with still a cynical political point being made after you've just watched this horrible massacre. It is kind of like, oh, there's Tim McInerney playing a ridiculous <laughs> Prince Regent. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how necessary it was, but maybe it was necessary no. for light relief. I don't know. I, I did find myself... Yeah, yeah, that was one of my sort of, oh, come on, dude, uh, <laughs> moments in the film. But I always enjoy seeing Tim McInerney anyway. Yeah, he's very, he's a good actor. Very funny. Ah, Prime Minister, Home Secretary, mid dears. Your Royal Highness, Sir Lady Conningham. Gentlemen, pray rest your asses. You must be stiff after your journey. Lady Cunningham, I trust you've recovered from your... Stiff. (laughs) (laughs) I missed my morning swim. Indeed he did, my love. (laughs) 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 Ah, you swim, don't you, Liverpool? I fear not, sir. Ah, didn't we? Oh, no, of course you don't. Damn and blast this bloody business. Indeed, sir. It is a most regrettable circumstance. And the film has got a great cast as well as, obviously, Tim Back and Ernie. It's got <laughs> Maxine Peake in probably... Yep. I mean, the film doesn't really have a main character, but if there is one, then it's Maxine Peake, who is... I mean, Rory Kinney is quite famous, but she's probably the most famous actor in it, I'd say. Mm. And, yeah, she's the matriarch of this working-class family who we follow throughout the film. And that is it's very sad really <laughs> just like the whole, the whole thing like you get very attached to them and then it all ends horribly yeah i found i don't know if this was a, a function of it being an ensemble cast but i didn't um even though i kind of yeah i knew it was gonna end badly for all of them but i think you didn't get that attached to any one character okay. um sort of had its well for for me at least so no I, I found it interesting that it opens in the context of the end of the napoleonic wars because yeah. yeah that's with that soldier who's like clearly suffering from post-traumatic stress or whatever and then he just gets turfed back to his life of poverty in Manchester and I, I kind of thought because I, I wasn't aware it was going to be an ensemble thing I thought all oh, right that's interesting so maybe we'll follow him and maybe he'll get involved in the reform movement and he'll mm. you know think about his role as an oppressive force abroad and then look at himself as a subject etc but no he was just a random schmuck wasn't he, is he um, which is does he not get a... killed at the end possibly I, I couldn't quite work that out because I did come away from the film thinking, right, so of all the characters that we saw and, and had a glimpse into their lives, are they now all dead? Um, yeah, I, no, I, he, I don't... he does get killed at the end, yeah, yeah. Okay. Maxine Peake, you see her and the family, like, burying him, I think. But, I mean, I think for me it was the Napoleonic Wars thing because they'd obviously built a lot of 
sympathy up for him. Well, maybe not quite enough sympathy, as you say, he didn't get that much screen time to be introduced as a character. But I felt they did build up quite a bit of sympathy for him as a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars with what obviously they wouldn't have been able to identify at the time as PTSD. So, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it was, uh, it, I, I mean, I felt having followed that character's arc, it, maybe it was a bit of a manipulative thing to kill that particular character. Because, I mean, it's obviously a very heavy-handed political point that you can make in a film like oh look these the government they don't even look after our own boys who go off and fight for us but... yeah yeah it's a chauvinist sort of nationalist perspective or whatever but it was it was something that formed part of political discourse at the time like a lot yeah. of soldiers who'd been decommissioned were coming back and even though they'd fought for their country in inverted commas there was nothing for them they were treated like shit when they got back home as all the rest of the working classes were but i thought it was one of the more effective sets of shots in the film really was right at the start as you mentioned i think mm-hmm. literally the first shot is this character joseph staggering around the battlefield as the war's ending Mm. clearly traumatized then no glamour about it at all and then it got straight from that to parliament at the time deciding what reward they're gonna give lord wellington you know for yeah, the, exactly. for, for, for so you get the generals being eulogized for, for, for it yeah it's very much like the film in, in many many ways highlights a very rigid class structure two different britons but in that way it's very much sort of driving home that the working class are essentially a resource to be moved around and used mm-hmm. and if that happens to be successful then it's the people moving them around that reap the benefits you know and yeah. that's something that then plays out in various ways throughout the film but it's right at the start it's driving that home yeah and no, i thought they made that point really well my lords i believe it unnecessary long to occupy the attention of the house upon the subject of the motion which i'm about to submit I am called upon by His Royal Highness, the Prince Regent, to propose a measure calculated farther to commemorate the glory of the Duke of Wellington. After such an heroic action as that of the 18th of June, after a victory which presented a display of all the great qualities of a general, whether for defensive or offensive warfare, whether for resistance or attack, whether for gallantry, perseverance, or skill. I would ask whether, after a victory unparalleled in history, Parliament could be conceived to do its duty if it merely confined itself to a vote of thanks and declined to present any further evidence of public gratitude to the valiant leader of such a signal victory, if it refused to make an adequate provision for this celebrated conqueror and his family. I move a resolution that this house grant to his grace, the Duke of Wellington, as far the proof of the gratitude of the British nation, the sum of £750,000. What did you think of the portrayal in the film of the Chartist movement? Well, I mean, obviously the film is about a demonstration for greater democracy, but... At the same time, you get throughout it introduced to these various meetings and you get to mm-hmm. see disputes over, say, how particularly fiery the rhetoric should be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think part of why Peterloo is significant is because it almost sits at a halfway point in the sort of great arc of early 
19th century agitation for democracy because you've got the response to the French Revolution which is 40 years earlier but it's still people still have like a living memory of that and it still is influencing the reform movement and it's influencing the government who are like really panicky about a similar thing happening in this country that happened in France. So Peter Lewis, yeah, had a 40-year remove from that. And then 20 years later, you get the climax of Chartism with their mass meeting in 1848, which again panics the government. And Queen Victoria runs off to the Isle of Wight because she thinks there's going to be a revolution in London, etc. <laughs> so it's there's a lot of intertwined agitations and discontents, etc., that are finding different political expressions. I mean, in, in the same way, these things are quite modern as well. Like there's all kinds of disagreements about should the movement be respectable? Should it be more militant? You know, should they actually attempt violent insurrection or should they show the government that they're respectable and if they can just get a million people to sign their petition then they'll get all their wishes you know so all these yeah the, I, I still think yeah resonant the, these very <laughs> modern disagreements um <laughs> were happening 200 years ago as well and chartism is important because it's the first mass nationally organized working class movement with Peter Lou, you've got a reform movement that's still largely being led by aristocrats, basically, and by middle class radicals and middle class reformers with a lot of popular working class support. But working class people are not yet taking leading roles in the movement. So you get like the, the guy who is um, the invited speaker at Peter Lou, um, Henry Hunt. Um, who I thought was portrayed quite interestingly in the film. Like he is, I mean, he, he's a big shot, you know, he, he's not a sort of humble Joe type, you know. He knows that he's a significant figure and he commands some sort of power and he commands a, or he feels he's entitled to a certain level of respect. So that's, yeah, the class alliances that are building and that sort of eventuate in Chartism as a specific working class movement versus Peter Lou, where it's still a kind of inchoate alliance of different forms of radicalism. I think the film captured that really well. Yeah, I mean, I thought not knowing too much about the history beyond a vague kind of overview of the portrayal of that character Henry mm-hmm. Orator Hunt it says yeah. on Wikipedia Orator was his nickname he must have been a very good orator <laughs> <laughs> so he was kind of like I guess a bourgeois radical or was he was he an aristocratic radical what do, do you know much about him do you think that they kind of exaggerated his prim and properness for the film you know in the way you said it was interesting how he was portrayed yeah, I'm like, I don't know a great deal about him. I mean, he wasn't an aristocrat, but he was kind of a prosperous... I think he was from, like, a farming family, a sort of landowning farming family. So the sort of rural semi-gentry, I guess. Yeah. But obviously his politics seem quite sincerely held. And he does take up the cause of political reform and radicalism in quite a sincere way, I think. But you can see, and again, sort of to draw modern comparisons, you can see how that sort of thing would go to your head. You know, if you're, if you're able to speak at mass meetings and thousands of people are acclaiming you and, and you're known as Orator Hunt, you know, then, then you're, you're going to possibly, I don't know, feel more entitled than humble. But yeah, I mean, again, he's an interesting character. He's an individual and he is, I guess, like any character would be, he's flawed even though he's kind of iconic i'm again trying to think back on how he was portrayed i sort of got an impression of him as a bit of a self-promoting kind of kind of (laughs) egotistical character but but then again you think well you know he's going in the right direction yeah like you you know how much can you really criticize him you know he's on the right side yeah i mean like sometimes I guess someone can be a bit of an asshole, but their actual contribution to the world can yeah. you know be kind of good not not to say that that one should focus on the being an asshole side of things and think <laughs> that the being good thing will come as a consequence of that mm-hmm. although, although i do recall trevor bastard telling us something to that effect once <laughs> i just wanted to give a little message to the youngsters out there setting off on their creative journeys the moment you do something even microscopically 
interesting. Some people out there are going to think you're a dickhead. So you need to just not worry about that in the slightest. Uh, in fact, I'd go so far as to say the more people who think you're a dickhead, the better whatever it is you're doing must be. And you can extrapolate that logic even further and say, if everyone in the world thinks you're a complete dickhead, then you've won the game. You've achieved it. Cultural immortality. They won't be able to touch you. So do it. Everyone on the planet Earth. Reach for the stars. So as you write in your piece for New Socialist, the advertising for the film made use of Shelley's poem, The Mask of Anarchy. And you write in this piece about the long legacy of that poem, which was inspired by the Peterloo Massacre. Mm -hmm. And as you write, it's endured beyond its immediate context, from the campaign for Indian independence through to the poll tax riots to mm -hmm. Tahrir Square in 2011. Mm -hmm. And Heartbeat, which I don't know if anyone... <laughs> If anyone remembers that bizarre um, police drama of, of the early 90s featuring um, former EastEnders actor Nick Berry. Um, <laughs> it was just always on every weekend forever is all I can remember. I've... I think I'm used to yeah, watch yeah. it. Um, yeah, there's an odd episode of it where they have a strike basically which is defeated but the sort of elderly strike veteran as he's getting dismissed kind of wanders out reciting the mask of anarchy that sounds so <laughs> 90s like the era of like brassed yeah. off and stuff where yeah. the, the workers lose but they retain their dignity and have a great speech about it yeah we still have our poetry you know we may be completely defeated but we still have our poetry that was <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I also really like, I mean, this is what I enjoy about your writing, which is that you'll just be going through it and then the jam will pop up. Uh, <laughs> their, their 1980 album Sound Effects. Uh, and then, of course, Mark Fisher, who drew this same parallel that you're doing here between. <laughs> so the Mask of Anarchy is quoted in the sleeve notes for Sound Effect. And wasn't that just like a year after Paul Weller pretended to be a Tory? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've, I've never gotten to the bottom of this because I've, I've <laughs> always kind of assumed... I yeah, I always like had a vague contempt for Paul Weller because my understanding was that he'd been really pro-Thatcherite in the early 80s or something. And I always <laughs> had a hard time, kind of like with Dylan, I had a hard time reconciling that with the fact that like his 70s stuff was so great and he was clearly a sort of popular modernist, great working class creative. But I don't know, I, I treat the pro-Thatcher thing as just a bit of a blip. Yeah. Um, <laughs> To be honest. I mean, like, um, now he supports Corbyn. When he was in the Style Council, he was really anti-Thatcher. Like, from <laughs> what I understand, it was just a stupid marketing ploy designed by his dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. Um <laughs> I think the significance of it is that, I can't remember who I was, I was talking to about this, but the majority, like my dad's generation, or maybe people younger than my dad, were aware of the Shelley poem, or, or that line, certainly, because they all had that jam album, which is <laughs> really odd to me. Again, in terms of culture being ordinary, the fact that they picked up on that historical resonance, and they'd chosen to use it, so it just kind of been absorbed by random mod fans. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I mean, like, well, Paul Weller, I mean, not to spend the rest of the thing talking about Paul Weller, but he's... Uh... 
please. He's, I mean, always been very indebted to a kind of old British literature, poets and stuff. I was very into him in my Oasis era. <laughs> yeah, that's like yeah. Yeah, you, you, you'll, you'll be... You, yeah, I mean, no, but I, I actually think in the last 10 years, he's he's started making really good albums again. But anyway, that's beside the point. You'd have him down as a Shelley fan, basically, is what I'm saying. He, I mean, he's always a very good, just to tie things up, he was always a very good kind of portrayer of working class life and stuff mm. like a town called malice that kind of thing you know that was really genuinely popular modernist and, and was really useful I yeah think. oh god and that's the album with start and that's entertainment mm. on it so no wonder a lot of people have that album yeah so anyway back to peter lou uh, so <laughs> and is there anything more about that poem really you want to say and it's its historical significance and what how peter lou and its historical memory figures into working class expression, be it poetry, literature, music. And I guess the first thing to say is that obviously Shelley was not a working class hero. He was uh, <laughs> an aristocrat and a public school boy. And the poem also was not published right after Peterloo. Like Shelley was inspired to write it, but it didn't appear in print until I think the 1830s. Like it was actually, I think it was published and then banned. His publisher thought that, you know, it was too inflammatory and it was obviously going to incite uh, violent insurrection, etc. So, uh, it's it the was mark suppressed. of a good poem. Well, yeah, you, they don't make them like that anymore, do they? <laughs> <laughs> Tempest, maybe. Well, I've, I've been to poetry nights, and like, <laughs> there's some good stuff there, but seldom get the feeling there's going to be a violent interaction. So <laughs> <laughs> much drink has been had, etc., etc. Um, but yeah, I think one of the again historical resonances. There's a guy called Idris Davis in the 30s who was a minor, but also like a massive Shelley fanboy, and he also wrote a poem called "The Bells of Rumney." Oh, yeah, I know the birds version of that really well. Like, it's like obviously, like, it's based on oranges and lemons, so the bells of St. Clemens, that, oh, that yeah. thing. Yeah, but it's, it's about class war. Yeah, and like Pete Seeger then set it to music, and other folk singers sort of picked it up, so you, you've got all these historical resonances coming through. This next song is mostly questions. Uh, but, you know, Einstein used to say that 90% of any research problem is learning the right questions to ask. <laughs> I guess every generation complains that the previous generation didn't ask the right questions. Be that as it may, this song was written in the 1930s by a Welsh coal miner. Oh, what will you give me? Say the sad bells of Rimney. Is there hope for the future, say the brown bells of Martha? Oh, what will you give me, say the sad bells of Britney? Is there hope for the future? But Idris Davis was working class, and I think part of the point that I make in the article is that poetry isn't just something that posh people can do. 
loads of people at the time with Peter Lou also wrote poetry, they wrote songs, and they produced art. A guy called Samuel Bamford, who was not specifically from Manchester, but certainly from Lancashire, who is a weaver. He wrote poetry, he sort of depicted his own life, he wrote a memoir about his life as a political organiser. So the idea that working class people aren't capable of culturally or artistically observing, analysing and presenting their own lives um, is bollocks. But we get faced with that claim and that supposition all the time. Which Don't I encourage get... from Jeremy. Exactly. And I, I don't I, I feel like I'm always ranting about the reception of that Corbyn line. But mm. I mean, yeah. so he said there's a poet, there's a writer in in all of us. Yeah, there is. Like, that's really obvious <laughs> when you look at history or when you just sort of look around. Like, of course it is. The, the idea that culture is somehow not ordinary. The idea that working class people can't understand poetry will... Yeah, no, they do. And they, they often use poetry in political ways. Chartist newspapers used to have poetry columns, mm. you know, and Chartist meetings used to end with singing of hymns and songs that the people there had made up. I mean, I'm making no claims as to the great quality of this poetry or these lyrics, but, you know, the people using art and culture to express themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, um, and... even if no one ever hears a song, even if no one ever reads a poem, it's got a function in as much as it did something for the person who wrote it and form to kind of express them yeah you know it it can just be sort of consolation like we're sort of saying yeah you're saying about the 90s you know it's a great series of working class defeats but we come out of it with you know a great line of poetry or or we (laughs) start singing especially you know yeah sometimes it's just consolation but that's a function that's a valid use of culture i'm just thinking about how in brassed off actually in the the coke over scab scene he doesn't actually have that much (laughs) dignity because he's dressed as a clown Uh, but he does do a good speech and then one of my favourite scenes from the film. Yeah. And then there is the very dignified speech at the end that Pete Postlewaite does. So they do have dignity. There you go. Just yeah. not not Paul Coco, unfortunately. It seems like to me, though, to be honest, because like, are we, <laughs> are we not all at Coco the scar band? <laughs> Postlewaite's character is Danny, isn't it? Again, that's, that's, mm. again, that's an amazing speech. It's one that I can't, I can't actually watch it without sort of bursting into tears. It's um, very moving, yeah. Harvest Festival. Well, to tell you the truth, I don't know too much about Harvest Festival. But I do know a story about God. So God was creating man, all right? And his little assistant came up to him and he said, Hey, we've got all these bodies left, but we're right out of brains, we're right out of hearts, and we're right out of vocal cords. And God said, Fuck it. Saw them up anyway, smack smiles on their faces and make them talk out their asses. And lo, God created the Tory party. Come on, may God forgive you. God? All right. Yeah, now there's a fella. I mean, what's he doing, eh? He can take John Lennon. He can take those three young lads down at Ainsley Pit. He's even thinking of taking my old man and Margaret bloody Thatcher lives. But what's he studying playing at, eh? You've been great. My name's Coco the Scalp.
They should re-release Brastoth to capitalise on the current clown craze in cinema because you've right now, right now you've got it chapter two and the Joker yeah, yeah. squaring off against each other, and and I think really they should just find like yeah. all the dailies, all the B rolls from when they were shooting the Coco the Scab scene, just re-edit it so he's the primary antagonist. He's the um, one who, who closed the steelworks. Um, anyway. <laughs> as long as they don't remake it with Jared Leto or someone playing him. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> Beyond uh, cursed image, that. Yeah, I know. I noticed that, that they announced the new Suicide Squad film cast and everyone is in it apart from Jared Leto. But I feel like I've I've lowered myself even acknowledging the existence of Suicide Squad. So let's uh, let's just return to Peter Lou and, and everything about it. I mean, Rian, like, so obviously you're a historian of, well, the history that is depicted in this film. But mm-hmm. are you a Mike Lee fan? Have you seen a lot of his films? How um... do you? I've got to be honest with you, no. I'm trying to think what films I have seen of him. I'm more of a fan of Ken Loach because I'm a rank sentimentalist. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I like Ken Loach a lot. I'm just trying to, because I enjoy, I mean, Life is Sweet, like, obviously is a classic, Mm. which I remember seeing, and Career Girls as well. Um, Oh, I've not seen that one, I don't think. That's that's pretty good. And again, this was the Blair years. It was just a weird kind of, I don't know, a lot of odd shit was coming out in the Blayers, but Career Girls is pretty good. He doesn't often... I, mean, I was interested in the fact that Maxine Peake was so active in, I guess, the production and certainly the advertising. Oh, of yeah, of course. Because, again, I, I sometimes worry about, like, oh, where are the women in all of this? But her role was really good. I, th- I think the film actually did really well in showing how involved women were. God, sorry, I should have asked about that, like, before we get on to, like, just talking about Mike Lee and stuff. Yeah, so, like, this is obviously something that the film, you say in your piece, you thought did a really good job of acknowledging. It's just kind of sometimes been forgotten in historical accounts of this. Yeah, I mean, something that people often don't know about the Chartists is that they initially were campaigning for votes for women as well as votes for men. So almost 100 years before the suffragettes, they also had votes for women as one of their demands. It then got cut out, like it doesn't appear in the People's Charter, mostly because, you know, they were operating within a patriarchal society and the majority feeling was, you know, we're already being radical enough by demanding the vote for working class men. If we demand the vote for women as well, people are not going to take us seriously. <laughs> oh god that's such like yeah, incrementalism I mean, like one yeah. step at a time guys come on let's yeah, not go that. crazy here but initially you know when p- people were just kind of throwing around ideas someone clearly came up with yeah how about votes for women people were like yeah sounds <laughs> sounds legit <laughs> but then i think yeah they had to be you know respectable and follow constitutional norms they're like no yeah first things first let's get the vote for men and then maybe votes for women but women were still really heavily involved in all of the reform movements and they also kind of I think in quite a cool way they adapted to the fact that they were living in a patriarchal society by presenting themselves as wives and mothers rather than women so they say like well you know as a wife I think it's really important that my husband gets the vote though what they actually wanted was you know democratic reform and eventually votes for women too they realized they had to present themselves within a certain discourse in order to seem respectable in order to be taken seriously so it was interesting to see how they adapted to that I'm trying to think they kind of portray that in Peterloo the film don't they and in Mm. that they show a meeting of women and it's very much framed in as we're going to go along to this march and support our husbands and sons etc yeah. Um, yeah but there are more radical women like, uh... in the meeting who don't agree with this framing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. dear sisters welcome to the manchester female reform society they said we've got to pay but i'm not paying because i haven't got out to give there is no money to be given if you do not have it please do take a seat i'm outstanding thank you as you wish As I'm sure you are all aware, 
There is to be a great meeting at St. Peter's Field to further the cause of reform. We have reviewed for a considerable time past the apathy and frequent insult of our oppressed countrymen by the borough-mongering aristocracy. And in order to accelerate the emancipation of our suffering nation, we do declare that we will assist the male union formed in this town with all the might and energy that we possess in obtaining the object of our common solicitude. I don't understand a word you're saying. Give over and sit down. No, she's right. I don't understand what she's saying neither. No. Ladies, please. You will all get a chance to speak. Pray silence for our president, Mrs. Files. Thank you, Susanna. One man, one vote. <laughs> Representation for all of us, for each and every family. And actually, I thought that was very Lochian. His films always have a scene where people get together in a meeting room and hash things out. Uh, yeah, yeah. And there was plenty of that in Peterloo. Mm-hmm. They frame it a lot as a vote for every household sort of thing in the, the various yeah. scenes in the film, mm. which I guess is a way to rationalise having that as a first step. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't just gloss over the fact that what they were demanding at that point was just a step on the way you know Hmm. yeah totally like going back to mike lee then i think actually this film stacks up pretty well with his other historical films that he's done there's topsy turvy which is his like three hour gilbert and sullivan biopic (laughs) which, which is actually i mean i've got like no affinity for gilbert and sullivan particularly but I really like that film. I think it's really funny. It's another one with an enormous ensemble cast, including some Mike Lee favourites like Jim Broadbent and Timothy Spall. And his period dramas are so just rich in the detail of the time. And the vernacular. I mean, I said that about Mm -hmm. Mr. Turner as well, but around the same time I watched Mr. Turner, I watched a biopic of Oscar Wilde from the 90s that Stephen Fry was in playing him. Oh, yeah, with Jude Law. Yeah, and I, everyone yeah, just everyone just spoke like it was 1997. I was like, this, fu- <laughs> this fucking shit, man. Like, give me, a, give me a Mike Lee film where everyone's like, he has the air of despondency upon him. You know, there's <laughs> a splendid cornucopia. Cornucopia. That's my shit. And Topsy Turvy, incidentally, is real politic producer Tom Disso's favorite film of all time. <laughs> I've not seen Vera Drake actually, which sounds really, really powerful. It's his film about backstreet abortions set in London mm. in 1950. I did see that, and I'm, I'm kind of, I, th- I think I, I liked it, but I, I, it was, yeah, it was sort of a meh, okay, um, thing for me. But again, I thought it was important that they were kind of telling these stories of working class women and sort of stuff that we take for granted, which we shouldn't these days, like access to abortion and to birth control. They had to be fought for. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Mike Lee's historical films, be it Victorian times or 1950, they do always take care to highlight the contemporary resonances of what he's talking about. Yeah. A recent film by Mike Lee, well, God, 
11 years ago now, but in the context of his filmography, because he's not massively prolific. He puts films out at a regular-ish clip, but it's every few years or so. And this film is happy-go-lucky. Have you seen this oh, one? Oh, God. No. <laughs> it's, it's the film in which... Eddie Marsan perfected the complex character that he now performs on Twitter every day. <laughs> oh, God. Because Scott is such a troubled individual, Eddie Marsan thought he was preparing for a heavy drama, and it was not until he started working with Sally Hawkins that he realised how funny the film actually was. Yeah, I, I think Eddie Marsan thought he was doing Taxi Driver, but, but it was just instead Driving Instructor, and then, yeah, the film is this kind of like, I mean, Sally Hawkins is just incredibly likeable and she does her most kind of upbeat, likeable character in this. And, <laughs> right, I'll get just another Mike Lee related thing in a second, but I've just realised. But yeah, Eddie Marson like clearly got really, really deep into this character of this paranoid, angry... Just this very frustrated man, you know? Kind of fascistic, um... racist, conspiracy theorist. <laughs> and Mike Lee is able to get some humour out of that in a way that Eddie Marson's tweets generally tend to lack, I'd say. In Raha. Keep to the left of the centre of the road. You know, you can make jokes while you're driving, Poppy, but you will crash and you will die laughing. <laughs> well, if you're gonna go, that's the best way to go, I suppose. <laughs> you scared of death, Scott? No, I'm not scared of death. I'm scared of dying. That's why I woke up. Oh, when did you wake up? A long time ago. Who set the alarm? I set the alarm. I opened my eyes and I saw. What did you I say? Mean, you can laugh while Rome is burning, but believe you me, Poppy, it is burning. And if you don't wake up, then you will be burnt to a cinder. I mean, look around you. What do you see? What do you see? Do you see happiness? Do you see a policy of bringing happiness to people? No, no. You see ignorance and fear. You see, you see the disease of multiculturalism. And what is multiculturalism? Multiculturalism is non-culturalism. And why do they want non-culturalism? Because they want to reduce collective will. The American dream never happened. The American nightmare is already here. I mean, look at the Washington Monument. It is 555 feet above the ground and 111 feet below the ground. 555 plus 111 is 666. 666, Poppy. 666. Keep to the left of the centre of the road. You're an only child, Scott. Enraha, use all your mirrors. Watch your speed. Oh, and also Mike Lee's regular cinematographer is a guy called Dick Pope, who won an Oscar a couple of years ago for Mr. Turner, and they credited him as Dick Poop. <laughs> So, Fantastic. God, is there anything else we want to talk about then? Because, Rianne, you said you wanted to get going by about eight. I'm okay to hang on. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, uh, if, you, if you want to chat about other things, that's fine. Geraint, can you think of anything? Yeah, I mean, one thing, as I say, I watched the film yesterday. So <laughs> I then read your article that Jack had sent me the link to, which I'd sort of avoided reading at the time because I hadn't seen the film. Uh, it was good. <laughs> And it's that and the other one that was on the New Socialist regarding that film as well. Bold oh, yeah. Link, that, yeah. Bold yeah. Link for this slightly unhinged Dominic Sandbrook article. 
<laughs> and I yeah, found that, as is often the case for him, just very, very funny, but not for the ways it was meant to be. So it's, it's an exercise in... Well, I think he's doing what a lot of columnists do, but he's really bad at trying to make it subtle. <laughs> he'll pick his ways in which he wants to use his topic to attack the left, and he'll do it, and you can see the lines in the argument. He's just like... <laughs> Actually, these people are bad for saying that Peterloo's so important because mm-hmm. Jeremy Corbyn, Mike Lee is a fan of Jeremy Corbyn, and that's why it's bad. <laughs> and then it's got Maxine Peake in it, who is the hard left actress, probably <laughs> has a Jeremy Corbyn duvet cover. Like, it's it's, think... it's, it's going to miss fire because people who are watching stuff with Maxine Peake in care about if she's a good actress anyway, even if they're not left wing themselves, and she that's obviously right. is, you know? I'm not remembering that she was in Dinner Ladies, the Victoria Wood sitcom. You know, if you're going to attack her, you know, you're going to have to attack Victoria Wood. You know, <laughs> banned Dinner Ladies from our screen for like hard left entryism. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think there's, there's always something really depressing about when you see. I mean, people talk about like the censorious left or whatever, but you always see right wingers who they can't watch Maxine Peake films because she's the hard left, or people who are really factionally invested in being on the labor right who just really 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 hate ken loach <laughs> and yeah like they won't they, even, they won't even like it's like vocally left wing yeah they won't even watch his films because they're yeah. just like that guy he's a hard left burst and i'm just like you know stand here before you an expert on the, on the films of clint eastwood not a left winger <laughs> and I, ju- I just think these people could at least make the same kind of effort you know <laughs> Good morning. Jeremy Corbyn. Nice to see you, Jeremy. This is Maxine Pate. Nice to see you, Maxine. It was really inspiring this morning talking to the two young men from Tazim Connor that we spoke to. So we're here campaigning for our party today. You've definitely got our vote. One thing for me that's been a strong point is the, is the NHS. The current government, they've completely gutted it. There's nowhere else in the world where you have a service like that. The NHS is such an achievement. The Labour Party has 500,000 members and what we want you to do is what Jeremy and myself have been doing today is to get out there, get knocking on doors, get talking to people, get encouraging people to vote Labour for a better Britain. We need things to change. Get behind Jeremy, get behind Labour for a, a country that we can all be proud of. June the 8th, you know what to do, vote Labour. Go to labour.org.uk forward slash volunteering to get involved. But they quote Danny Finkelstein in the Joseph Cousins piece in New Socialist as well, don't they? It yeah. is a much more nuanced piece for the Times where mm-hmm. he argues that Peterloo may have represented an outrage and a scandal, but the British left are wrong to elevate this ephemeral incident to the level of a turning point in the nation's political development, which is like a much more much more nuanced, yes, but it's, you know, classic hand-wringing. Mm, totally. I, mean, I find it so interesting that all, and I think Joseph Cousins does make this point in his piece, that these debates and these sort of perspectives on Peterloo were, were happening at the time as well. You had people saying, oh, you know, was, was it really that bad? Yeah, yes, we accept that the magistracy might have panicked. Perhaps they shouldn't have murdered quite so many unarmed demonstrators, but, you know, they, they could have murdered more. So really, what, what are we uh, complaining about here? And also, I mean, I, I don't know, I was kind of, I don't know if this is just me, because I'm heavily into 
folk memory of the minor strike and that kind of thing. But the end of it, sort of the carnage, kind of reminded me of both of sort of the factor of Orgreave, the Battle of Orgreave, and the way that Jeremy Della had sort of reconstructed that battle, etc., where you have sort of demonstrators versus the police. I felt the minor strike and the idea of policing and crowd control, etc., was something that sort of cast a modern shadow over the film. Yeah, as well. absolutely. I mean, Jeremy so Della's restaging of Orgreave is, is mm-hmm. really, really interesting. And Mike Figgis, who was the director of Leaving Las Vegas, the film that Nicolas Cage won his Oscar for. So it always says, Academy Award winner Nicolas Cage. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Mike Figgis directed a documentary for British TV in, I think, 2000 that was basically, it just followed Jeremy Della attempting to restage Orgreave. And I think it should be on YouTube in its entirety. I think people should watch that if they're interested in this. But yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels between Peterloo and Orgreave. And weirdly, actually, when I told my dad that we were recording this, he went off on a very like contrarian spiel about how <laughs> Peterloo is not significant and we should be talking about Orgreave instead. And I was like, well, I don't think any of... Doesn't have to you be know, one or the other. Yeah, yeah I don't think any yeah, of my exactly. people are saying that Orgreave isn't, isn't significant. No, of course, and I think they're both equal and one sheds light on the other. I mean, one, I don't know if this is mentioned in the Joseph Cousins piece, but at the time when people were, were trying to sort of exculpate the authorities from what had happened at Peterloo, there were claims that the demonstrators who were... I mean, I mean and again, let's sort of let's look at what Peterloo was. It was a meeting, a mass meeting on a field in Manchester. It was made up of men, women and children. There was music, there was food stalls, etc. It was a sort of carnival celebratory atmosphere that was then violently attacked. But claims afterwards said that the demonstrators were armed, they were drunk, you know, they, they were a volatile mob, and they might have attacked the soldiers first, and the soldiers mm. were just retaliating, which is exactly the same as I mean, and it goes obviously beyond the minor strike, but particularly at Orgreave, there were claims that the pickets had like thrown stones at the police, and when the police charged the picket line, they were just responding, which wasn't the case at all. Like the police were the aggressors there. Yeah, um, obviously it became even... controversial with the BBC sort of playing the footage in non chronological order. And, uh, yeah, on exactly, the which sounds I mentioned to people for years, and I sound like a mad conspiracy theorist. But <laughs> what do you do when the state broadcaster plays footage in reverse? <laughs> in order to suggest yes. that the police were just responding to provocation by pickets who were chucking bricks at them. It's like, yeah, read that some, didn't happen, though. <laughs> read some effing Seamus Milne, folks. That's all I'll say. Sorry, yeah, Mr. Insane. Seamus Milne. I broke the real politic house style there. Mr. Seamus Milne. Yeah, all these debates about the policing of civil unrest and how threatening the authorities find crowds of working-class demonstrators. You know, they find them so mm. threatening that they will sanction murderous violence against them. You know, this was the case 200 years ago. Still yeah. the case now. Absolutely. I wasn't aware. So Jeremy Deller has actually done something commemorating Peterloo as well as Orgreave. So he's drawn the same parallel. Yeah. A, mm. a public memorial by Jeremy Deller. Do you know anything about this? Only that there is one. Um, I should probably know more. <laughs> I was interested in just the whole variety of commemorations. There's a really good graphic novel on it as well, and a really, like, a massive book, which I'm just about to start, but it's intimidatingly heavy, by Robert Poole, which sort of looks like it's going to be, like, the ultimate authority on the thing. But, yeah, there's also been a few public memorials. I'm just actually Googling for the Jeremy Dallow one. I was just doing that as well. Um, (laughs) Apparently, it's been widely criticised by disability groups for being inaccessible to wheelchair users, so maybe... Swing and a miss from from Jeremy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, apparently Jeremy Dallas told Radio 4 that addressing accessibility had been enlightening for him. Oh, okay. Okay. That's that's good good to know. Good to know, yeah. (laughs) 
But yeah, Jeremy Deller and Mike Lee are by no means the only people who have been... I mean, obviously it was this year, it's the 20th... Uh, sorry, the 20th for 200th anniversary, isn't it? Rather than last year yeah. when the film came out. But it's not only Della and Mike Lee who've been commemorating Peter Lou recently. There's a new academic study, which actually you mentioned by mm-hmm. Professor Robert Poole. These are mentioned at the end of a Joseph Cousins article in New Socialist. And also apparently a historically informed graphic novel by the artist Polyp. Yeah, which is really good. Oh, is it? Okay. If you'd asked me how to commemorate Peterloo, like a graphic novel wouldn't have been <laughs> my first sort of go-to, but it's surprisingly, well, maybe not surprisingly, it's very good. Let's just go with go with that. It's very good. Oh, cool. And Maxine Peake approves. She's got a quote on the cover, and apparently, which I think is very cool, they've released it as a free-to-download schools edition. So there's oh. no longer, according to their website, any excuse for leaving this pivotal chapter of English history out of the national curriculum. I mean, we've covered quite a lot of ground, so that makes me think of something that I don't think we really have talked about, which might, if, I mean, if we want to wrap up soon, we should probably get this in. But Peterloo is not really ubiquitous in the British classrooms. It's not, I, I, I don't think it's part of a national curriculum, is it? It's not something that you know about from an early age, really. Ah, they don't teach us anything. That's history, you know? This is something yeah. that's, I know Maxine Peake has sort of made the point that the only reason that she knew about Peterloo is because her family was left-wing activists etc so they mm. pass that knowledge on to her and i think yeah again i can't remember where i read this but the majority of the actors who, who were in the film for all the sort of age and variety a lot of them didn't have any idea about the events that they were reenacting which is i was gonna say it's bizarre to me but then of course it's not because why would they yeah. teach just this the stuff that we are and this is kind of like particularly with michael gove's attempt to reshape the curriculum so that it was would you say something like it was black adder and and, and more <laughs> more something else yeah um, maybe mike lee including the black adder segment of peter lou was a kind of a, a, a sort of subtweet of michael gove yeah <laughs> like here you go this is a film steeped yeah. in working class history and also we've put a bit of black adder in it fuck you michael gove <laughs> <laughs> I think the the gold thing was around when there was that concerted effort, wasn't there, to try and rehabilitate World War One? Yeah, twenty fourteen. Really it would have been the centenary with Dan Snow and people like that coming ah. over of it as well. Yeah. Simon Hedges, he was writing the worst shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Michael Gove should go back to studying history, really, because. He's utterly wrong. Yeah, the thing is that even though this history is not taught and it's suppressed, when when people do come across it, they're enormously interested. And I think they immediately know that it's something that's important. It's quite embarrassing, but about a month ago, I did an episode of Who Do You Think You Are? with Jack Jack Whitehall and his dad. Oh, yeah, I remember you posting about that on Facebook. It it wasn't about the Newport Rising, but they were tracing their ancestor who was involved in the Newport Rising, which was an attempt by Chartist demonstrators to violently take control of Newport. Um, 22 of them were murdered by the British state and it's still like the biggest loss of life inflicted by the British state on unarmed demonstrators that's ever happened yeah, it was 15 <laughs> who were killed at Peterloo wasn't it and, and well like 600 injured which is astronomical yeah. But, yeah. And I mean, just as a quick aside, further outlines the cinematic scale 
of mm-hmm. what happened there and i'm sure at newport as well it's not like this stuff is all like fucking boring dreary history it's riveting in its yeah. own way that's the reason why i was interested in it at all as a teenager you know it's like oh wow not not only is this my local history and, and the history of my class but it's just an amazing story it's dramatic it's iconic etc etc but it always surprises me when yeah like I, I did that weird jack whitehall thing and obviously i was surprised by it because he's a posh boy so why would he know about it um <laughs> so many people that i knew were like my god i had no idea about this so what is chartism why did they want the vote this is a huge glaring gap like do you not ever look around and think okay we've got the vote how did that happen you know it mm. wasn't it was down to us by some sort of moderate centrist god or whatever we had to reshape <laughs> we had to reshape the political system we had to reshape the world because the world was changing and the world changing brought mass working class in this country into existence they had to reshape the world so that they had representation and the idea i don't know the shock i guess at the idea that the british state would respond violently to this like yeah of course they shot people that's just how the british state rolled <laughs> at yeah. the time and that- how it still rolls you know and it's how yeah. it rolled in northern ireland it's how it rolled in india and, and kenya you know why are you surprised when it's closer to home you know it, it, it always really baffles me but but it's people are interested in it i think is the thing if it isn't taught in the national curriculum then there's certainly space for political education or sort of grassroots education around it because it's really important to know these things it gives us a sense of ourselves as historical actors not just sort of background or extras jack and michael have discovered that jack's four times great grandfather and Michael's three times great-grandfather was Thomas Jones Phillips, a solicitor who lived in Newport in Monmouthshire. To find out how Thomas Jones Phillips was regarded in his hometown, Jack and Michael are visiting Newport's John Frost School, named after their ancestor's neighbour. So we saw reference to John Frost in a letter that my ancestor wrote. And he's got a school named after him, so I'm guessing he wasn't just a tailor. That's right. Uh, John Frost is a local hero. He was a leader of the Chartist movement. John Frost believed the Great Reform Act did not go far enough. He and his fellow Chartists argued that all working men should have the vote. Equal representation and payment of members and vote by ballot. So all pretty reasonable things that... Well, these were all very radical ideas at the time. Mm. The, the idea that we have now that voting is some sort of inherent human right had to be very fiercely fought for. And how does my ancestor, Thomas Jones Phillips, fit into all of this? Well, let me show you this uh, newspaper report from 1839. Examination and committal of the Chartist leaders for conspiracy and sedition from the Tory times. So here is a mention of our ancestor, Mr Thomas Jones mm. Phillips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as um, clerk to the magistrates, that was actually a really important role because it was his job to give legal advice to the magistrates themselves and also keep a record of everything that went on. And it does say in the most praiseworthy manner. Mm -hmm. So they're praising him for what he did. Yes, the Tory Times are praising him Mm. for shutting down the practices of this great guy, Mr Vincent, who was speaking about trying to spread democracy through our land. Welshman will not vote. Around 5,000 Chartists marched on the Westgate Hotel, where a group of their fellow Chartists were being held prisoner. 500 soldiers and special constables guarding the building opened fire on the protesters. So what happens after this nightmare here? 
After the battle, which only lasts about 20 minutes to half an hour, um, the surviving Chartists um, scatter, but obviously there are, um, there are warrants out for the arrest um, of anyone who took part. Which brings me to this document. £100 reward, John Frost. The above reward will be paid to any person or persons who shall apprehend and bring to justice John Frost, who stands charged with the crime of high treason by order of the magistrates. Oh, God. Thomas James Phillips isn't the guy that finds him and turns him in, is he? You talk in your piece for New Socialist about how when Jeremy Corbyn included the poem's best-known lines in his 27 appearance at Glastonbury, he was acting within a long and commonplace tradition of struggle, mm -hmm. remembrance and political education. And I mean, you know, there's a lot that's disillusioning about the Corbyn movement, but I think that what's been heartening about it is that somebody who is actually steeped in movement politics basically has been able to re-inject that to some extent into the party and stuff like the world transformed is probably the best kind of mm. illustration of that yeah definitely <laughs> i think we should wrap up in a minute but we talked a bit earlier about your book that you co-edited under my thumb but i've got this other book by you here which i haven't really got the chance to look at yet clamp down pop cultural wars on class and gender so i mean do you want to just like briefly mention what this one's about oh fucking hell sorry i just opened it in the first chapter introduction <laughs> the greater rock and roll swindle there's a quote from gramsci a quote from tony blair and then the first paragraph is about tony blair meeting noel gallagher at down sorry noel gallagher meeting tony blair at downing street noel gallagher was not prime minister contrary to popular opinion <laughs> yeah, but, yeah this... you should you should read on <laughs> yeah this sounds great <laughs> i find it really as i don't know if you were both involved in the Britpop saga that's gone on Twitter in the past. Yeah. Oh hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really engage in it because I was like, again, not the sort of blow my own trumpet. Was like, yeah, I kind of wrote about all this in 2013. <laughs> 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 but no, it's important that people are sort of revisiting the 90s, especially because you, you think about the 90s and the sort of hegemonic impression we have of it is is that it was all you know Blur and Oasis and Diana and everything everything was great. But like there was a lot of really radical, militant, angry stuff going on in the 90s that kind of disappeared. I think it was a continuation of the battles of the 80s, you know, that sort of won. But then in the 90s there was this idea that those battles had been won, so there was no need to worry about the working class because we were all middle class now and that kind of thing but opposition to that was hugely present in popular culture and that's not really something that we remember when we think back to it I think at sort of say 20 or 30 years removed so it's really interesting to think in cultural terms about that well it's an excellent looking book and it advertises on the back your blog velvet coal mine it's <laughs> a great name are you still writing velvet coal mine um not so much no I guess the bloggosphere has kind of waned a little bit now. It's all social media and podcasts yes, and all I mean, these. Everyone got kind friends. of. I used to really, um, yeah, maybe five years ago, ever I used to find the bloggosphere really useful. But then it's like everyone. I think actually a, a lot of them just started writing for the Guardian, um, <laughs> and so, so it was sort of like long form blog posts disappeared, which I kind of regret. I mean, because Twitter's great, even though it's a cesspit, but it's, it's also very, very good. But I, I do miss that kind of long form writing and then responses to it and that kind of thing. I guess medium may have sort of mm. stepped into that void. But yeah, Twitter is not good for nuanced analysis, shall we say? I feel like Phil BC is keeping the blog flag flying <laughs> yeah, a little yeah. bit. 
Like, all that is solid. Look what a very public sociologist melted into is his, his little byline. Like, yeah, I, I, I enjoy his posts a lot. But yeah, you're right. It's not really the golden age of, like, K-punk and Leninology. Well, Richard Seymour's like us. He writes everything on Patreon now. <laughs> and I think maybe, like, as in what publishers like Zero Books, I think, were a sort of maybe like a bridge between that when people basically t- turned a lot of their, their blogs into books, mm. basically. Um, yeah. And they're just kind of carrying on the zero traditions. So I, I guess if you want to do long form writing, you just write a slim volume on it now rather than writing a blog, I guess. But I, I miss the online community that just had yeah, lo- loads of mad shit. Um, but people <laughs> disagreeing or sort of bringing up, you know, weird artifacts from, from the 70s that no one had heard of, that kind of thing, and, and seeing what they had to say about the culture of the time, which is basically what a lot of what I do in Clampdown. I mean, the book is basically like a caprice. It was just me thinking... You know, I loved a lot of these really obscure bands in the 90s that haven't really <laughs> made it to popular consciousness because Blur and Oasis and Pulp kind of overshadowed all of that. But yeah, there was a brilliant, uh, I go on about it for like about five pages in, in the book, but there was a band called Smash, who I cannot remember anything about right now, but they had a song called <laughs> I Want to Kill Somebody, which was yeah. in um, 94. And I mean, it's Drek, you know, there's very little artistic validity that one can say about it. But in terms of the fact that everyone was incredibly pissed off with the Tory government. And that song is just a sort of like murder fantasy about... <laughs> <laughs> about the major cabinet it got to like maybe 34 in the charts or whatever but it was banned on the radio or like they, they played it but they blanked out all the lines that involved cabinet ministers getting murdered <laughs> <laughs> fuck's sake man <laughs> it's a lot fact that like if, if you're looking at the 90s from a super perspective you'll miss all this there was weird shit going on that was much darker angrier more militant than we think when we look back on it Welcome to let me know if there's any other books that you've written or contributed to. But the one that I can think of offhand is that you were one of, I don't have this one, unfortunately, but you were one of three contributors to an anthology about the Manic Street Preachers. Am I I right? Yes, that's correct. (laughs) They seem to, having flicked through Clampdown, they seem to come up in here as well. So are they a a returning concern in in your work? Recurring, rather. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that book, Triptych, is called... It's basically my big number, to be honest. It's basically me just, like, <laughs> using the Manix and the Holy Bible album in particular yeah. as a lens to sort of look at what the hell went wrong in the 90s. So much of that album was, like, a warning sign for where we are now. Like, it deals with the rise of neo-fascism, deals with sort of intersectionality versus identity politics, that that kind of thing. Yeah, buy it. Available from all good bookshops. Uh, and. <laughs> be bad bookshops as well um <laughs> although so, well, just while i'm plugging myself <laughs> 20 years after peterloo there was a mass uprising in the welsh countryside which is known to history as the rebecca riots which i've written a whole book about because oh. it was my phd that i eventually dropped out of but then i turned it into a book yeah so there's that as well oh cool what's that book called is it out yeah it's called petticoat heroes so yeah everyone remember to pick up 
<laughs> under my thumb, petticoat heroes, clamp down, and triptych, all of them. Be generous, don't just select the one. Yeah, there's all these out there, and check out the archival blog posts on Velvet Coal Mine, and watch Who Do You Think You Are? <laughs> just, just really, <laughs> just really explore Orian's work, uh, and of course, you appeared on one of my favourite podcasts on the left, Desolation Radio, recently. Yeah, those, are, those guys are. Excellent. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, they're absolutely brilliant. Yeah, those guys are great. So yeah, always worth giving them so a shout out. All the stuff that Dan Evans, who's Desolation Radio head honcho, read all the stuff he's written, especially when he applies Gramsci's idea of a top-down revolution to Welsh devolution. <laughs> they did a great episode. Uh, <laughs> on one very brief music-related point, they did a great episode with Gruff Reese from Super Furry Animals. <laughs> Who? Oh, Super Furry Animals. Geraint made the Baitest joke about them on our last episode. We really should wrap up now, but Geraint, do your terrible joke about super furry animals again. See, <laughs> I've been trying this joke for 18 months, and when I did that on the last episode, that was the first time anyone laughed at it, so I'm kind of thinking, quit one in my head. There's also no context at all. So we were just going through like the list of Tories that Boris Johnson had sacked, and it was obviously one of them's Guto Beb. And I said, that's not an MP. That's the answer you get when you ask Jess Phillips what her favourite member of the Super Furry Animals is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good joke, isn't it? I like it. Two people that's found great. it funny. I'm on a roll. I can retire now. I'm happy. <laughs> it's great. You're like the Stuart Lee to left. <laughs> melted all right well anyway like thanks for joining us so much rianne and yes. for going Sorry. you know Thank carrying you on for like half an hour after you said originally that we were going to stop like no it's been re right. really great talking yeah, it's um, been lovely. yeah and everyone remember to check out all of rianne's books and <laughs> also watch mike lee's peterloo which i thought was actually a really excellent film yeah so thanks for being on here guys and thanks for listening everyone at home thanks for having me Ah, thanks, honestly. Like, you're one of our best guests in ages. <laughs> <laughs> and we've had Mark, Mark Seddon on recently. <laughs> I'm honoured. Like
tech, it's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing. 